Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you from the furthest regions of our known universe, tucked out safely in a little cave that sounds kind of like a hotel in Sacramento, California. Apologies, this episode's coming out a, a little bit late. I wanted to wait and um, record it until after all of the um, Bay Area and adjacent shows were done. Uh, had Sacramento last night. It was great. Everywhere was really fun. Thanks to everyone that came out in San Francisco, Mill Valley, and Sacramento. Specifically to Sleepy Lola on Twitter. She mentioned the Space Cave uh, while I was on stage last night in Sacramento. Sat right up front and was just great. It was her first ever show. So thanks again for coming. And if you're in the area when I'm doing shows and you listen to this show, let me know, especially ahead of time, and I'll do my best to, uh, especially if you mention the Space Cave, um, I will do my best to let, to hook you up with some tickets or whatever I can do, because I really appreciate it. I'm glad you like the show. Uh, this coming weekend, I'll be in Bend, Oregon, and Portland, Oregon, and, uh, and then after that, Boise, and then Minneapolis. So if you live in any of those areas, and it's around like August or September, 2019 come on out um the junk show second sunday of every month in los angeles at the copper still if it's between the 8th and the 14th of any given month that sunday the junk show will be happening if you like music comedy animation short films just general variety of artistic folks you'll enjoy that um sorry for all these plugs right up top let's get it out of the way um and lastly one-headed beast the stand-up special we made a few years ago that's um part me doing stand-up and part animation is available to stream on the roku channel as well as amazon prime so depending on which um corporate overload so depending on which corporate overlords that's tough to say that you um, feel most comfortable with. You can stream it online and um, and watch some stand-up, see if even coming to a live show is even something you're interested in. Um, hopefully it is, though. It's nice to see people out, especially you Space Burgers. Okay, let's get into this. Um, this is part one of a chat with a, someone I've become very, very good friends with, I would say, over the years. And we talk about that in the beginning, our progression of like, we don't really remember how we met and things like that. And yet... We check in, say hello to each other. So she came over to um, share a beer that you'll hear the specifics of, particularly with one person in mind. This is a beer that's been asked about probably since the beginning of this show. And so, uh, known, I hope hope you enjoy this beer and try it out. Okay, this is um, this is part one with Joanna Leach. Enjoy. What? Space Cave, yeah. You have a guest? <laughs> guest mug. My my mom got me that, and then I like to do a little Foley action. <laughs> so help yourself. Um, this is Omission Brewing Company. Oh, exactly as I said, right when we start, a garbage truck or something will come by. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, well. Oh, and it's, look, it's foaming that's, out of the top of the bottle. That's like a fancy man commercial. Yeah, it's perfectly, like, um, hemispherical <laughs> right out of the top. And then this is... <laughs> This is crafted to remove gluten from a mission like brewing company. When like a, a neighbor's a friend's dog's penis is just a little bit showing. Yeah, that is much. that's what the got going on there. Yeah, it does have. Sorry kind of, to give you that image as you go to drink your beer, but it is kind of like that. Do you remember those little? Thing, I don't even know what they were called. Poppers. They were kind of like almost like a condom, and you would like push push them. And then you would set them on a table or something, and they were just like kind of a, not quite a nipple, oh, but more rounded. Yeah, and yeah. And then they would hop up out of nowhere. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. And then you'd go, it's doing it, and they'd pop up, and then you'd do it again. Really way too much time in my life spent doing that. Uh, but I did enjoy it. And it, this, for whatever, reminds me of the same convexity. Is that a yes, word? Yes, okay. sure. Okay. <laughs> Convexness. Convexness, yeah. Well, it's good to see you. How do you like this... It's just called IPA, Bold and Hoppy, and it is crafted to remove gluten. This is um, a, f- a friend of the show, Known Wells, has been asking since its inception, hey man, you should get some gluten-free beer, and I finally did it, and I... Is it free, or is it just removed? It's crafted to remove it, so I think that's their way of saying, look, dude, there might be some gluten uh-huh. in here. Ooh, the gluten content of this beer cannot be verified, and may contain gluten. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm glad I got this now because you've recently transitioned into the law. Mm-hmm. And I thought omission isn't really necessarily like a legal word. There were some other ones that were like Liberty, or but they dealt more with bells. Then there was like Brooklyn Defender, but it seemed like more of a comic book character. So mm-hmm. I was like, and we're, you're, even if you are a Defender, you're not in Brooklyn. But now that we can get into the legalities of them saying, Look, we tried to get the gluten out. You drink it. You have a reaction. You say you have celiac. It's on you. And it. we have stated this is very vague language. Yeah. So what What would the... Say I'm a person that goes, I had a terrible reaction. I have celiac. The gluten got mm-hmm. to me. I was drinking in spite of my celiac. And uh, the gluten got to me. Now I'm suing you. Would I have any leg to stand on? Well, I should preface all of this by yeah. saying that I'm uh, a, a legal baby idiot um (laughs) i'm only uh in my heading into my second year and so uh i cannot neither uh offer any legal advice or any legal opinions or really uh any legal knowledge yes um (laughs) other than uh the very limited uh gleanings that i've gotten from my first year but yeah i think you'd be uh pretty much screwed over with language such as this yeah, I couldn't be suing, right? Yeah. The language is just... just. Uh, You've been inc- warned. It's on the product. Mm-hmm. Um, drink oh, it in your own risk. Yeah. So, but I think if you are... I guess I should try it. But I think if you are a person who's gluten-free in your life, this is a good one to try. Do you like it? Yeah. The color is yeah. interesting, right? It looks, I guess, like beer, but there's something... I guess I could actually drink this mug using the mug handle. Oh, yeah. I never mm-hmm. use the handle either. No, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was thinking like maybe an IPA would be a little a little too hoppy or something. In the summer, I wanted something a little more crisp, but this has a light, um, there's a little hoppiness to it. But overall, nice light hoppy summer beer. <laughs> nice choice. Yeah, thank you, and I'm glad um, you're enjoying it. 
And, um, well, I guess, so in the past, I've had attorneys, uh, or I've been responsible for putting them in a situation that was maybe not optimal. Like with Professor Blastoff, my friend was in law school, mm-hmm. and then people who were practicing attorneys were not thrilled with that that he was a guest you should wait till you're an actual expert which i think is absurd um but anyway i have some familiarity with chatting with people when they're going look i I don't know all this yet but your struggle to meaning i'm back up there the meaning that like i'm (laughs) i don't think inviting you and expecting you to know everything about the legal system or Mm -hmm. anything like that i'm more interested in talking about your journey, and I don't like that word, it gets used all the time, but yours is definitively a unique sort of, you and I met when you were at a little, not mom and pop, but a small animation studio, mm-hmm. and then, and I was trying to think the other day, how, did I just randomly end up at Nickelodeon, and I was like, oh, hey, you, or had you invited Sarah and I to come in, or just me? I don't even, I think it might have been just you, because yeah. there was the the writing thing, and I had always wanted to work with you. And you're writing. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that today. It was like, how the hell did I meet you? Yeah. And I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I don't either. I remember going you were in. just sort of there. Yeah. Same. And then we've become, which is tough to do in LA, like to meet up two or three times a year is a lot. Yeah. To like have lunch mm-hmm. or something. And sometimes people a year or two will go by and like, oh man, I haven't seen you. And we've done a pretty good job of just checking in, yeah. seeing what's going on in each other's lives. And in the course of it, it went from that meeting at Frederator to just kind of get a sense and I had a show idea that wasn't, and that I remember the guy there being, it just didn't seem like we were going to sync up, he and I. He was kind of older and very like, no, that won't work. No, no one's looking for that kind of thing. So was, I remember him being kind of discouraging. Mm. And then, but you were like, yeah, it's exciting. This is great. Check this out. And showing stuff that you were making there and being enthusiastic about it. Well, I also feel like you and I, I definitely appreciate your sense of humor. Oh, thank you. Uh, Likewise. And I think... I think that was part of why I was like, I was always trying to figure out how I could work with you was because I just enjoyed it and wanted to see it as like a, as a viewer. Um, Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely tried. We got pretty close at Nickelodeon Mm -hmm. when uh, you and Kristen were like, yeah, we like this idea. And then your boss or the person directly above you, she had purchased a similar show. Literally another show with (laughs) a hole in the ground. (laughs) So that was a bummer, but and then you would we would meet every now and again just to chat about like oh I especially when I had ideas I was trying to do or I have a show like this or I'm trying to do these type of characters and then it felt like the the B story in this situation and us knowing one another was the climate of the world at large mm-hmm. and you sort of being aware of it as everyone is and finally doing what virtually no one does is going damn it I can't stand it no more. <laughs> I'm going in. And then you decided to like abruptly change course. You were teaching for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, and I'm sure that was like rewarding, but not in the same way that yeah. like I'm getting in at the base level. I mean, that was definitely the teaching was a way to like get out of entertainment and test out the waters on law school and like make sure that was something that I wanted to do because I'd already at that point gone to undergrad for film and animation, gotten my MFA in animation Mm -hmm. and had been gearing towards animation for so long and then gotten into it. And like after a couple of years, just been like, 
this is not where <laughs> I want to be. And and like you said, that sort of B story of like looking at the world around and just being like, something feels not right. Mm-hmm. And then finally making the decision to like get out and go for it. But part of it was like, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to go to law school, get through it and then be like, oh, fuck, I hate it here. Yeah. Um, so teaching was a, as a way for me to have a little bit more free time and sort of test things out. So like more activism and political engagement and volunteering and um, working for different organizations downtown. And then also studying for the LSATs, looking at different law schools, figuring out what it was I wanted to do. And then that was, it was a good stepping stone. Mm-hmm. And and it was just like a nice breather. It was really the school I was teaching at was just a really great community, and everyone there was so nice, and the kids were so inspiring. How was it similar? Because I think of law school, I think of just piles of books and being just overwhelmed and constantly trying to scramble to keep your head above water. But then when I think of teaching, I think, like, yeah, you're busy and you're doing some prep work, but overall you're engaging with the students and, and you're you're controlling a little bit more of your pace and your level of stress, hopefully? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I remember hearing one of my professors first semester of law school said, I mean, he at that point had been uh, teaching for a long time and he was like, you know, it's, it's good you're getting me at this point in my career because early on, you know, they ought to pay you to teach mm-hmm. um, or you ought to pay them. Sorry, rather. Uh, <laughs> I think they, they do they pay They do people. pay you. Um, <laughs> You ought to pay them yes, for the experience of learning for the how to experience. teach. And that first semester, I just had no clue what I was doing. And I showed up and I was teaching it like the kind of class I would have had in undergrad and the kind of environment that I was in in undergrad, which was not the students and their experience and even just their time mm-hmm. that I was there. It was a very different, it's a very different world, very different kids, different coast. And... It took me a rough semester to figure that out because I showed up and I was like, let's all just like talk about ideas and talk about (laughs) art. And like the undergrad I had gone to was all about that. Like you could have a class that was just like, let's show up and shoot the shit for two hours. Uh Um, And kind of realizing that I needed to come up with more structure and come up with... um, Sorry, that's my mm. stomach. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I, it was definitely trial by fire. By the last semester, I was like, oh, I think I could be a teacher. And now is the moment that I exit. <laughs> uh, but I, I taught for those two years and used that as a way to, yeah, kind of start looking into law school and applying for law school and then getting into law school. Well, I feel like some people, and I've known a couple in my life, that law school wasn't necessarily a plan B, but it was like a, if I don't pursue this, it's hard to explain, but like, you know, some things you have to do. I'm a singer. I've got to sing. Mm-hmm. Some people go, they, they become an accountant. And then in the back of their mind, they go, I, I never tried singing. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's kind of like that, uh, except it's, I don't know that I want to be an attorney, but I think I'd be really good at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I do need to try it. So that's kind of what my, where my friends went, mm-hmm. working just kind of like doing okay, but like, this is crazy. I could be making a lot more money. I feel like I could be helping and making a difference. And I could really challenge myself. Could I do that? Could I really log the hours? And could I like pass the bar? All that stuff. 
Yeah. I mean, I think this has been the the benefit and kind of the detriment of going back to school um, at my advanced years. <laughs> um, you're not an elderly person. <laughs> you're, you seem like but, you're still at an age in life where everything's available. Oh, my God. But they've never heard of Mbop. They <laughs> have never heard of... There's just like basic comedy movies that they've never heard of. Oh, yeah. Even legal related, like My Cousin Vinny. Mm-hmm. They've like either never seen it or never heard of it. Fish Called Wanda. They don't make enough movies about scrappy attorneys who have no business being in that position <laughs> and yet are like weirdly competent at mm-hmm. it. Those, that's a fun character. Yeah. But uh, I think because I had been working for a little while and it was... I mean, this definitely didn't come out of the blue. I had uh, finished undergrad in 07, and in 08, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina. Is uh, this where you went to, like, the the hills and lived in a cabin for a bit? Um, not in a cabin. I lived in a house with two former cult members, though. It was a brother <laughs> and sister who had both left a cult that they had grown up in and had just rediscovered each other. Whoa. And um, that was amazing. I'll bet. Uh, they were, I mean, they were lovely people to begin with, but then it was just interesting because I got to be the conduit for their pop culture knowledge where it's like, they knew... Let like, me get you... Have you heard of Umbop? Yeah. Just. Yeah. Just that's... Begin with that and then go from there. <laughs> um, they... I played Star Wars for them, and when Darth Vader says, I'm your father, they were like, what the fuck? He's lying. <laughs> that is a fucking lie. <laughs> and... Uh, Sixth Sense. I mean, just like twists that are everybody knows. Yeah. Um, their favorite band was Toto. Mm-hmm. They knew the like extended Toto catalog, but like had never. I feel like it was like never heard of or never really listened to like Miles Davis. Uh-huh. So it was like they had a very like interesting pop culture um, language, and I was I was in the privileged position of getting to sort of expand that that world for them is that that sort of level of assimilation was there something there to you that was like we're all playing in this game that that's such a weird way to this sounds like someone that would have like a soul patch be saying we're playing in this game but <laughs> that humanity and culture to culture but specifically like western american our culture that we all share we would meet someone and go well, you, you do what you've never seen tommy boy Get over here. <laughs> we can't breathe the same air if you haven't seen the same movies I've seen. And that that's a real that's a real uh, hurdle to overcome if someone knows none of the music, none of the movies. So you're like catching them up to speed like, here, once you've seen all this, you'll just be a normal person. You'll be like the rest of us. I mean, it's one of those things like there's a it's it's heartening and disheartening because um, you don't want a person's existence to be defined af- off of like yeah. capitalist product. Right. And yet, that is kind of the language, and this is, I think, what drew me to entertainment was I feel like, especially kids' entertainment, because when you're a kid, you, like, assimilate that stuff so intensely, and you experience the shows you watch so intensely. And then, when you meet somebody else that grew up on it, and you're like, oh, my God, like, you watch Clarissa, I watch Clarissa, or like, oh, man, no, I was a PBS kid, ghostwriter only. (laughs) Um, And it was like finding out that you had a, a cousin in common Mm -hmm. and I think that was the thing that drew me to that industry was because it was 
I don't know. It was it was a it was a kind of language that we could all share, and it was a kind of way of forming an identity and thinking about like who who do you want to be based on what are you seeing modeled in the stories that you're watching? Yeah. And it's like a safe sandbox to experience these things and to test out these things. And I mean, I'm very lucky that it's like I grew up with like wild thornberries and Clarissa and then graduated up to like Agent Scully. And so I had these like tough, strong women. Yeah. Um, but then again, end of the day, it's also about selling product and, uh, <laughs> there's maybe something a little bit uncomfortable about that but um but yeah i don't know to go back to like your experience as someone choosing what the commodity is going to be and anyone that gets into art in any way finds that you get into comedy you realize don't forget to plug the nachos Mm -hmm. you know everyone's in here with a two drink minimum with most comedy clubs where it's you're just occupying their their eyes and ears for a bit while we sell the hell out of them with other stuff upcoming shows nachos tater tots tons of booze close it up let's get out of here move on and i don't even know i was going to say necessary evil but i don't even know if it's necessary evil so much it's just like necessary because it has to people have to get paid people have to pay their rent you as an artist should be paid for standing up in front of people and coming up with original ideas and sort of again kind of like forming that language for them when they're thinking about what do I find funny and what do I engage with and Mm -hmm. how do I experience the world like you're somebody who's then externalizing that for them yeah Um, and you you should be able to make a living off of it so it's it's one of those things that it sits a little bit uncomfortably but I don't know what a a better system is and with the yeah, I mean, the system now is changing a little bit with things like Patreon and, mm-hmm. you know, like this show, there's no ads just to try to avoid being a part of that thing. We're like, oh, you can you can do the thing you like and you can listen to the thing you like inexpensively, but you have to involve this middle person neither of us enjoy, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> an advertisement for a product that... You, you don't enjoy MeUndies? <laughs> not to disparage any particular online <laughs> advertiser, but I don't love that they've become synonymous with this medium that originally I think was birthed as one of the final vestiges of kind of like a punk rock aesthetic. Yeah. Hey, I'm doing this. I don't need someone to tell me I can. I'm doing it. If you like it, great. If not... I'll continue to do it. Mm-hmm. And then instead, it's slowly morphed and changed into, what's your podcast pilot idea? If we like it, perhaps we'll air it. And people go, oh, shoot, they didn't like my thing. I didn't get to put it up. And so this, to me, was the the rebuttal to that of a yeah. system that's like, because that is the old model that is, we've got a slate packed with pilots. Two of them are going to get through. The rest, no dice. Mm-hmm. And then they never get to go make that thing. So now it's changed a little bit where people can be like, what if I just worked really hard at it? What if I really believed in this idea rather Mm -hmm. than go pitch 20 more pilots? I just really honed in on this one. Could I make it? And then maybe they go to PBS and get some funding in a different way. But the question I was going to ask, looking at that from the side of like the purchaser. So now they would say, oh, there's more representation. There's there's more. And some people on the other side of that would say, there's a demand for it now more so. So Mm -hmm. it's just the market. Whoops, I just bashed the (laughs) swatting at a fly (laughs) in the mic. But the market has switched because there's a demand for it more so. So then it's not so much about, hey, look, we're we're really doing this. It's more like we're kind of taking advantage of what the consumer is demanding. Mm -hmm. So if 
And just sort of sliding right in there. Yeah, just making it look like we're really progressive and ahead of it. Whereas maybe you go back to Clarissa or the things you referenced. Did they have a 50-50 thing where hopefully someone in charge went... Let's do this one. Both these characters are really cool, but let's give little girls someone to look up to and let's do this even if we risk something. Mm -hmm. And that's so weird to think that there may have, maybe there was no risk at all. Maybe we're just looking at it through the wrong lens, looking backwards. We always think everyone was like so much worse back then, but then in a lot of ways, certain race relations, maybe even like gender relations were maybe better. Yeah. Well, I think there was like legislation passed in in terms of like how much advertising you could do and how much uh, educational content you needed to have on the air and sort of right at the time that cable was hitting. um, I I feel like we've like done like a a big circuit around cult member roommates to (laughs) cultural language yeah. And back again. Don't they all kind of tie together? Yeah, though? yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think they're a starting point for, if they knew nothing, who are they? Are they feral children that are ideal, compassionate, thoughtful humans? Or are they kind of just these lemmings walking around with big eyes? <laughs> you go, hey, hey, you don't know about Elf? Jesus, how are you even alive? I know, and that's the thing. It's like, I feel sort of weird now looking back and being like, oh, well, you have to have seen like the usual suspects to have <laughs> cultural link. I think for at that point it was just fun to sort of show them anything with a twist and see them yeah. flip out. Um, but to feel, cause it's like, you know, one was an, a nurse and the other one was like an architecture student. So like definitely not like <laughs> they weren't wearing burlap sacks and just sort of being like, nature's beautiful. Yeah. Join my crystal cult. <laughs> uh, very much like full functioning, adult human beings there was just sort of this weird like missing cultural language so it was was fun to share that but I mean that had been uh, right at this point where I had at that same time been volunteering on the Obama campaign in 08 so we're in like western Appalachian North Carolina and I had made this deal with myself where it was like if he if he wins then everything will be fine I can go study animation there will always be an adult to take care of it um, and if he loses, then I'll go to law school. Because I think it had been something even in undergrad. Um, the undergrad that I went to had uh, just a really great um, political studies program. I hadn't been in that because I had sort of said animation, art. Uh, but a lot of my friends had been in it. And it was just, I was always sort of inspired by them and amazed by them. Um and then we had the Bard Prison Initiative, which was also just this amazing program. I did not participate in that. Um, I think at the time it was only associated with, I think I, I feel like you had to, like it was only associated with like a, a men's prison. What did it stand for? What is that? It was, um, I think it was originated by a student and it was, uh, you would go in and this Bard would give college classes to prisoners you had to apply it was very i mean it was a full barred college degree that you would earn at the end so you had to do the work so you had to sort of apply and it was a whole process um but it's an amazing program and a lot of people have gotten their uh, like a full ba from bard um through through that program and you know while incarcerated and 
like following their release, a lot have gone into activism, community organizing, um, and it's it's one of those programs that really goes to show that when it comes to like avoiding or diminishing recidivism, like education is sort of one of the biggest things. What? I'm um, sorry to. What's recidivism? Uh, basically, people ending back up in the system. Okay. Um, and ending up back in jail, yeah. reoffending, mm-hmm. whatever that is. Um, and let me and stop I think, again. Oh. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Two of them. Jeez. Recycling is important. True. <laughs> okay. The Bard program. Yes. Recidivism. Um, and it was something that I was always like, well, I'm an artist, I'm over here, how do I fit in with that? Um, but it had always been something that in the back of my mind had sort of been there, and it felt like an itch that hadn't been scratched. And so I had sort of had this moment of like, well, which path do I want to choose? And I chose the arts, and I'm not, I don't feel like it was like time wasted. Um, I love the people that I worked with, I love the work that I've done the experiences that I've had as a result of it and I also feel like you know even going back to school it's not like oh now none of that is applicable to law school because at the end of the day like story is everything the ability to convey information the way it's done is by story yeah so if you're writing a paper or if you are a trial lawyer um you are still or even if you're teaching any kind of conveying information you're still telling a story and you have to find a way to do it in a manner that's compelling and engaging and you want people to be guided along this path that gets them from point a to point b without realizing that you've been setting up all those breadcrumbs you want them to feel like i've come to the conclusion of b on my very own yeah and part of that is narrative Mm mm-hmm and, and it's how we contextualize our lives. It's how we contextualize our world. So I think even though, you know, I was working in kids' TV animation, and that was something I struggled with at first when I was starting to tour schools and think about law school was, like, I'd be like, well, I have a very non-traditional route, and, like, can I do this? And they were like, yes, of course. Like, it's, it is applicable. Um, and were they excited because it, it offers different perspective? You know, if, if you're the attorney in a, in a small town and everyone's had the same experience and then you can say, well, you know, your tractor got stolen or run over or hit or whatever. We've all seen that. But then the, the world is a lot bigger than that small town. And someone who has been in the entertainment world or been in the creative side, is that just another new voice or narrative for them to be like yeah we need that we can't have all attorneys that all have the exact same history yeah i mean again the only thing that i can really speak to is like the educational component but when i have been meeting with firms and with lawyers it feels like they there is kind of an ear perk up of like oh you've you've come from a really non-traditional place yeah because i think a lot of them have come from really non-traditional places this idea of like every lawyer out there you know went to Yale for undergrad and Harvard for law and mm-hmm. uh, they finished it up at 25 and then they went and worked for the government for two years and like they, they've all followed this same path I think isn't true and I think people who are out there practicing are coming from a whole range of experiences and so I think that that is something that it does seem like it has clicked with 
people who are out there working in the field. Again, that's just my very like limited experience meeting with people. In terms of the school experience, I definitely feel like it's it's nice. I feel like I weirdly relate more to some of my professors just because it's like I think I've had more um there's more sort of like shared cultural language. Mm-hmm. Um or maybe just more out. like life experience. Yeah, yeah. Paying some bills and being an adult for a little bit longer yeah. maybe than... Well, even stuff like I definitely had some students, fellow students who were like, you know, man, September 11th, what, what was that like? Because I was in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like I'm beginning to get to this point where like our cultural, our cultural language is there's not as much crossover as there used to be where it was like, it used to be that I could like at least throw down like a Harry Potter reference and the the kids would get it. (laughs) And I feel like that is happening even less now. I'm trying to figure out like, what would I even use as sort of a common language? But weird to think that we all kind of not chastise ourselves, but don't offhand know like Plato and Socrates or <laughs> a ton of Shakespeare. And yet you just go, well, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of other stuff from that point until a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of like, oh yeah, we know all 95 of the books ever written. Yeah. And that's obviously ridiculous, but we're not all something like Chaucer references. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's sort of like you could, you could live your whole life just on like one band's catalog of work or mm-hmm. one film director and be like, yeah, this is ap- applicable to any scenario I'm in. I can reference a quote or a scene or a character. That's why the Simpsons is so good. Yeah. You, you, you could probably have an interesting experiment. Could you, only try to relate to people for like a month using only using Simpsons. Only Simpsons. I bet you could. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't seem like that hard of a challenge, but it'd be fun to see the results. Although that again is something I'm running into where it's like they've they all know the Simpsons the season fifteen and onward. Yeah. And you know, I only know Simpsons one through ten. Yeah. A few a, a smattering of eleven. Mm-hmm. Um uh one thing I was going to ask you in that, was there like a philosophical, it sounds like there kind of was, but it, you know, it wasn't maybe that hard set where sometimes, so the narrative, you read books and you feel exposed to the thing that the cult members maybe didn't get a chance to do is mm-hmm. seeing life through a number of different perspectives and going, oh, well, I think the really orthodox people that think it's this, they have one thing that's enviable is an absolute concrete knowledge or at least belief Mm -hmm. that borders on knowledge to them of what life is. Mm -hmm. Just do this, work hard, make a bunch of money, have some kids, go to heaven. And you're like, wow, that's great if you knew. But for other people, they go, I don't really know what it is. And I feel like the artists lean that way where they go, all of this is silly. You don't have to wear slacks or a tie. We're just barely evolved beyond chimps. It's silly for us to act like this all matters and it's real because we're just floating out here in absolute nothing. (laughs) And then so artists kind of, I guess, float along that way. And then, but sometimes they go back and they go, yeah, it doesn't matter, but it also can be made better. And therefore I want to be, sometimes they start to feel like art was selfish. You know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I just got to be this artist because I want to. Well, it's a hobby. Kids get to be doing hobbies you have to work yeah so was there any of that that factored into it of like a guilt feeling or just like this make-believe and silliness it doesn't it doesn't have any real lasting impact 
Well, I definitely think that's something you have to confront a lot, especially working in kids' TV animation, because it's animation, yeah. it's TV, which is sort of even more fleeting, and it's aimed at kids, so you can't even be like, well, this is like adult series, like this is <laughs> HBO. Yeah. Um, it's by its nature kind of silly, but at the same time, and I think it's it's easy to sort of let potentially let it get under your skin and get it let it kind of bug you, mm-hmm. feeling like oh are we just making sort of dumb fart jokes? Yeah, and you know, god damn it, yes we are, <laughs> uh, because because it is like that's that's humor and that's how you start to like figure out yourself and figure out what kind of stories you like. And I think there have been times where I've gotten maybe a little bit disillusioned about entertainment. I think that there were times where it'd be like a big, you know, network party. And I'd be like, why are we spending this much money on, you know, Santa Claus dancers? Yeah. Like, do we really need five Santa Claus dancers and like, like six people dressed up in Victorian dresses, Mm -hmm. like wrapping out carols? Yeah. When, you know, maybe we could use this money to like pay artists a little more yeah. um, or just make more shows or um, so many things and, and that, I guess that's where I was kind of asking because like when you think of the Oscars when you live in LA and if you get you know if you if you hang out near Lexington and La Brea that's right where they cut off traffic so all the limousines mm-hmm. go by there and you'll see like 30 limousines go by in one batch and then right near that, a lot of homelessness. Mm-hmm. And so that feeling of how can we blend these two things? How can we reconcile this level of like waste and extravagant and uh, extravagance, I should say, to feel good about it, to feel like, yeah, we are making all this and all this yeah. money piled into it, but for what? And what? How are we making the world better? I think it's just getting comfortable with that discomfort and knowing for yourself what is that line Mm -hmm. and I think the thing that sort of ultimately got me out of animation was feeling like I really did want to pursue the law like the things that I was getting the most excited about you know just kind of looking around and like who was I finding inspiring what kind of if I had to sort of dream up any kind of future what would it be and it was it was things that involved having that was nice fully there, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, having a legal education. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, and it, you know, it had been this thing that had sort of been in the back of my mind of like, you know, is this a route that I want to take? And that whole time, it had sort of stayed, stayed back there. Mm-hmm. And so finally did make the call. And I do think there were some things about, you know, the entertainment industry and where I had been, I sort of, you know, I always kind of wonder maybe if Me Too had happened two years prior to when it did, would I still be in entertainment? Just because there were some things that were tough to be in on a sort of day-to-day capacity. Really? Yeah. That's so, ugh. And that was it the Nickelodeon guy that everyone... Yeah. Um, that was definitely part of it. Um, and, you know, and it was disheartening to talk to female friends and be like, and sort of realize like, oh, I basically never, I'd had like a job where I hadn't been harassed and or like assaulted, basically. Ugh. And I think it was just, and it's not to say like, well, in the law, everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody behaves ethically 
and is a moral upright citizen in the law. Uh, clear, clearly, current politics has taught us that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. But uh, when you think of animation, you do think of like comic book guy from The Simpsons kind mm-hmm. of with an with a dash more silliness. Yeah. Where you're like, this is not someone who's groping or making lewd jokes. You're like, it's humans. The humans do that, I guess. Yeah. At least a small fraction. So therefore, no environment is safe yes. from that. Yeah. Ugh. And I think, but the thing that was like, okay, well, I am going to go into the law was like, well, at least I'll have the information. And I think that was a big thing was, I left, I was teaching, and I think, I guess I must have been in my first first year of teaching, second year of teaching, and um, that was kind of right when Me Too hit, and then this guy at Nickelodeon was let go, and we started this like internal union hearing against him, and I think... Throughout that whole process, I was studying for the LSATs, starting to look at schools, starting to look at what programs were on offer, sit in on classes to see what kind of schools I wanted to go to, Mm -hmm. um, meet people who were in law school, meet people who were lawyers, and then write, I think I had been accepted, ooh, maybe like February or something and then in April we had the internal animation union hearing against this guy and just seeing like the direct impact it was myself and I think maybe 10 other women who spoke out against him and seeing how it directly impacted their lives and just like oh and and there was an animation union lawyer who was a great guy he's unfortunately since passed away but just his ability to like have the information be present um you know ultimately he was an advocate for the guild but that his how clear he was in his words and how thoughtful he was in his actions i think was one of those things that was like yes this is the route that i want to go down and so i think that that experience was something where it's like okay right choice you know I think I I can't remember if I had been accepted or if I had already accepted the offer in return but it was sort of along that path and it was like yes this is so this is the right choice this is where I want to go I want more of that yeah it sounds like that level of like synchronicity if it were even close to that where you've applied you're waiting it's still kind of like toe in the water but not sure if you want to plunge and then seeing someone who really embodies what you think could come out of that, that'd be be really helpful to be like, oh, what this person is doing is what I want to be doing. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not even sure if, like, the kind of career he had is the kind of career I want to have. He did a lot of, like, union work. uh, But he was a a Loyola Loyola alum. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was part of, I think, what he spoke so well of the school and of his experience there. And that was sort of also kind of like, yes, right choice with the school. Nice. Um, But I think that was was definitely, like you said, like a nice sort of moment of things kind of syncing up. Yeah. And then, of course, like as soon as that hit, there was like another another showrunner who had victimized some individuals. Um, on their crew 
And I was just like, God damn it, is it ever going to end? Yeah, it did start to feel like <laughs> but that. But it's not. I mean, that's the thing, though. I think if you are aiming for it to be a perfect world, you're never going to achieve the thing that you want. But if you aim for empowering people, you know, having the right information, being able to find the right information and apply it, um, and being an advocate for sort of first and foremost the law and then your client within that, then I think that is something that you can aim for and something you can have. Mm-hmm. That's, I want to get into that further, um, maybe in the next part, but like thinking that, so originally when we were like scheduled to record this, you were working at a facility or place. I want to get too specific where you were like, oh, well, <laughs> my views aren't necessarily my own. So I could yes. come on and yeah. and thinking like, well, your views are fascinating to me and I like how passionate you are and I like your ideologies. And then, so I'm curious about that when you get into, you know, it, I, I remember thinking how weird it was and then also trying to take some level of comfort in any of the federal judges being instated or, you know, stated is that right yeah instated that sounds so weird to say what am i high <laughs> roads uh, <laughs> just say it 10 times really slow until it loses all meaning <laughs> instated instated so anyway the judge is being placed and going oh man this person's track record against this 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 or this they are you know we the laws that we apply are the laws that exist and therefore there's some ambiguity to that so if you were an, a judge or an attorney back when women couldn't vote you would have had to kind of bang your gavel and or turn to a client and go well as we all know you can't vote so nothing yeah. i can do and there'd be an inner part of you that would be going i'm just seething anger. i'm so frustrated that this is the world we live in whereas now we like to think the the laws are somewhat just or a little more civil or certainly more progressive than women not voting mm-hmm. and yet is there still that thing where the laws that you're going to be asked to analyze and again you're not that far into your education but are, is there ever going to be a period where you're like oh this doesn't sync up with maybe my moral compass or what i think the law of the land or the world we live in should be but i have to proceed this way if that makes any sense well i think i feel like i'm almost in answering that i'm almost gonna like take a step further back which is like when i was studying for the lsats when i was thinking about going to law school when i was starting law school like i had definitely i had to sort of like rewire my brain a little bit because i think especially recently is like people of like like self-educating in the law has has become a bit of a a fashion of Mm -hmm. um you know people suddenly reading um the wikipedia page for the constitution and then being like i know my constitutional rights yeah um that there's this idea of like there is the law right it's like it's on a it's on a page somewhere it is yeah but really like the law i mean again idiot law school student so what do i know <laughs> we've already prefaced that at the beginning it's just it should it should just be play in the background <laughs> like there should be like a like a like a cnn ticker at the bottom that's just like idiot law school student yeah the um, audio equivalent of like a watermark yes uh that can be your commercial break <laughs> um but the sense that i've gotten is that that's not what the law is the law is this moving changing thing that is a code that's out there but you know it it 
kind of embraces the human experience because I think, again, we all want to believe that like our memories are a little computer, our eyes are a little video camera, and our experience of reality is this fixed absolute thing. Our experience of time is a fixed absolute thing. And like even that is not true. Mm-hmm. And it's this really kind of like malleable thing that we sort of like memory, we're kind of like making up memory as we go and like what our eyes are able to experience. It's just like a sensory input. But we have this, we come up with a very like fixed idea of like, this is what the world is. This is what this, you know, table feels like. And because of that, there cannot be any like pure recollection of an event. So uh, this, this metaphor was used uh, to me a lot this summer, which was like, imagine there's a shooting in the middle of uh, the Rose Bowl mm-hmm. and the you know stadium is full of attendance. You're going to have 100,000 different opinions about what happened. Yeah. And all stages of the law kind of bake that into that kind of human fallibility into what the law is while at the same time saying that the law is sort of this concrete thing. So for example... Having a jury that they are taking in all this information, they make a decision at the end, it's still people, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a jury is not a computer. We're not plugging data in and saying guilty, not guilty. Yeah. Um, because a witness experience can't be a computer readout. Um, Some, I've watched a few of these documentaries on uh, people exonerated from life. You know, on death row sometimes, mm-hmm. not even just in prison, like on death row, and then DNA evidence uh, exonerates them. And then the people go, oh man, in re-examining the case, they didn't have an eyewitness, they didn't have this, they didn't have this, and then they go, but a jury of 12 people of a variety of ages and ethnicities, etc., and a judge, everyone found this it was unanimous it wasn't even so the human aspect in that was just swayed by at least in theory someone who was just very good at being a prosecutor they just laid out a narrative where everyone arrived at oh okay yeah i guess when i go back objectively they didn't have this person id to the scene they just happened to live within a mile of the place and they had a record it's always something like that yeah there's enough there for someone to go oh i could see it but then when you get down to just the evidence, DNA is one of the few things we have with that. When it, when it becomes books and how they are written, that's so much different than DNA in that it's like, what's factual about this? Yeah, but even DNA, it's like, can it be tampered with? And is it, you know, mm-hmm. like, how clean is that sample? And yeah. um, putting too much reliance on computers and data, I think, is, it's a, it's it goes, bo- it cuts both ways. And... I think it's the same thing with the law. It's like you look at this thing and it's how do you you read a case and you're saying, well, this is what this case says is the law. But like, how am I how am I reading these words? How am I interpreting these words? And then how do I apply it? And that can be very different. So that's like kind of another element where like the human sort of fingerprint gets on the law. And then also just like the law. I mean, I remember like people were up in arms about like the emoluments clause. Mm -hmm. Right. And we were going to get Trump in trouble because of the emoluments clause. But the law isn't law until it's been applied. It can be a thing on the page, but you don't really know until it's been pushed up against something and somebody's, a judge has said yes or no. Um, And I think that was a big thing for me, kind of deciding, again, this was like a field that I wanted to go into, was because there's a lot of 
I mean, it can be kind of scary to be like, oh, well, what, is, what is the law? Because um, it is a thing that's out there. You know, it's like we got the Constitution. We can look at that. We can point at that. We've got we've got codes that we can point to. But at the same time, it is also the application of it, the way it lives in the world is based on human experience, which is something I love. Like, I think, you know, people talk about, well, the, the law is just going to be AI and we're just going to, you know, you haul somebody in court and sit them in front of a computer and the computer yeah. says guilty, not guilty. And to me, like, that is a incredibly depressing idea because I think it's it's amazing that we have built this system. I mean, the law didn't come from nowhere. It came from humans. Yeah. And then we have fashioned this thing that baked into its core is the human experience and the fact that we can never know what actually factually happened. Um, we can have a lot of things. We can have video recordings. We can have DNA evidence. We can have... Um, a little person saying, I did it. <laughs> uh, but that we can't, we can't definitively say absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's what's kind of so amazing about experiencing the law. And then I think it's sort of to, to go back to your question about the, like sort of what is that philosophy? Um, you know, I think that that for me is the thing that I find really inspiring is this idea of like people who commit themselves to this idea of the law as a thing is something to be upheld. And in, in a weird way, they're kind of upholding humanity and the human experience and yeah. the fact that it is this sort of changing thing that we're aiming towards. But it's not like they're they're not sort of saying like, well, you know, I'm going to tattoo the Rosetta Stone on my back and then that's like, that's the law, man. <laughs> um, that it's, it's something that is so fundamentally human. I really want to um, dive further into that because it, it created some thoughts I'd like to share with you and questions. If you're ever taking a quick little break, mm -hmm. we'll get back into that. I got I got a sweaty butt, so let's take a break. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Come back next week for part two. She's just really fascinating, as you can tell, living a cool life and, and making a, an interesting turn and one that we get further and further into, you know, the why behind it. And um, I think it's just fantastic. So I'm excited when people do things like that. It's really inspiring. And she's just a joy to chat with. So uh, next week, part two with Joanna. Um, and you can listen to bonus stuff from previous guests. I'm trying to think who's in there right now. There, there's quite a bit in the last few months. A lot of people have, been, have had the time to stick around and do a little extra chatting. So there was a, a bonus piece with Conrad um, with Scientology stuff. And then... Um, I don't know. Check it out. If you subscribe to the Patreon, you can get back um, episodes as well. So there's a bonus, yeah, I would say, almost every month. A couple bucks a month. 50 cents a week. You can get access. And more than that, help out the show. It's made possible from contributions from listeners just like you. Sincerely appreciate that you do um, contribute in that way so that the show doesn't have to have any ads. I really enjoy that. And if you want to subscribe or review, if you leave a review, it really does help with the uh, analytics and things like that. I haven't made a big push about that virtually the entire length of this show, but uh, in talking with people that do enjoy it, um, they seem to appreciate that, that it exists. So the best way to, to help it is to just tell even just one person um, and to review it. So thanks for that. Okay, let's get on out of here. Again, if you're in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest this weekend, I'll be in Bend in Portland the following weekend. 
uh, Labor Day weekend. So if you don't have any plans, you don't want to go out on a lake or something, come into the lounge at the end of the universe. My friend Jen just started it. I'm really excited to see that get off the ground. She's great. It's a cool idea. Very um, Hitchhiker's Guide-esque, which as you know, with this show, I'm a big fan. Uh, And then after that, Minneapolis at Acme. So hope to see you there. Okay, here's some music from... um, one of my favorite albums was Music for the Morning After. And then I, on some level, I feel like Pete Yorn's gotten so successful that I don't really need to play his music. Enough people know who he is. And this is a new song he has, though. And I look on YouTube, it doesn't really have that many views, which I think is just a crime. I think he's terrific. I hope you like it, too. It's Pete Yorn. It's called Calm Down. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. <laughs> 